actually said to God, I said, God, I will do anything you want. Just make this work out so our kids don't get hurt. Well, God, you know, they always say God has a sense of humor. Well, he kind of did in this moment. He listened to the first half and he ignored the second half. He listened to the, I will do anything you want. And he ignored the, just let this continue to happen. Tell them for me. A podcast brought to you by Road to Purity, where recovering sex addict Dan opens up to his son, David, about his journey towards healing and redemption. Whether you're battling addiction or know someone who is, this podcast offers a beacon of hope and a reminder that you're not alone in this fight. Tune in and let's navigate this journey together. Hello and welcome everyone to Road to Purity's first podcast called Tell Them For Me. More on that later, why it's called Tell Them For Me, you'll hear in one of the first few episodes. Uh, but I'm David, here along with uh, founder and head of Road to Purity, Dan Unks, and also my dad. Uh, this is just going to be a podcast we decided to start putting together to have conversations, chats around, mainly around struggling with addiction, addictions of all kind, but primarily sexual addiction, pornography, uh, but really anything. We'll, we'll probably over the course of this podcast get into a lot of different topics um, that'll hopefully be of interest to everyone and things we come across all the time, spiritual things, deliverance even. Uh, we'll have a lot of different interesting topics. But to start with, um, just for the first opening of our podcast, uh, I want to start with kind of where this all started um, and, the, and the depth of the story probably laid out more than anyone has heard in any of our talks, any of the talks that, that you've given, but um, hear, hear my dad, hear Dan, Dan Unk's talk, uh, sharing his story, his experience, how Road to Purity started, why we got here, um, and started doing the work that we're doing. So what do you want to start with? Well, um, probably what I'll do is I'll, st usually I start with when I do uh, uh, my, my talks, um, testimonies and stuff at conferences, I will lead in with the uh, uh, couple of paragraphs of the introduction of my book, which kind of sets a stage of the depth of where things were, which is really sort of the middle of my story, but it kind of, like I said, like I said, set the stage of it. Um, and I'll just, uh, it's from the book called From One Addict to Another, uh, which is my first book that was bought eight, nine years ago. And, uh, the couple paragraphs go like this. It was roughly eight years after my affair, and in some ways things with my wife had gotten back to normal. Yet there was very little intimacy, and she still seemed to resent everything I did. There was still anger and pain over what, I had, what had happened. Time had moved on, but we never completely dealt with my actions. And now it was starting again. I'd fallen back into looking at pornography and acting out. In recent years and months, it had become more and more frequent. To this, point, to this point, I had been able to withstand going any further than this. But then one day, I drove by a massage parlor and stopped in. And let's just say I experienced more than a massage. Afterward, I felt so disgusted with myself, which was unusual compared to the way I used to feel after acting out sexually. This time, I somehow recognized that my behavior wasn't actually about sex. Rather, I knew it was seeking to fill a void that could never be filled with this behavior. I felt so horrible that I drove immediately from church to church, looking for a priest to hear my confession. 
I was in a panic, and I knew I had to do this right now. I went to our usual church, but no one was available. So I drove from church to church until I found a priest who could listen and hear my confession. After I had finished, I told myself that it was over. I can't do this again. Several months later, my wife learned that she had a sexually transmitted disease, evidence that I had strayed from our marriage yet again. She became completely unglued, and this time was talking divorce. My world was collapsing around me, and I knew that Roxanne was justified in every emotion she had and whatever action she took. What I couldn't believe was that I had done this again. I finally started to realize that maybe I have a problem. So that was roughly eight years ago, uh, nine years ago at this point. Um, and starting back, as far as I can remember at the beginning for me, um, I, uh, uh, well, before I go into that, I'll, I'll just kind of give an overall picture that I was addicted for over 30 years. Um, and I refer to myself as a recovering sex addict. And I've been in recovery for about 14. And why I say sex addict, not porn addict, is because I was involved in massage parlors, prostitution, uh, affairs, that kind of stuff, you know, beyond just pornography. So I, it was the whole gamut for me. Um, and, and in my story, the earliest I can remember is actually about uh, second grade for me where I created an imaginary female friend, um, not sexually uh, active or anything, any type of relationship like that, but it was more of a friend that I had, uh, imaginary friend, like I said, that was helped me feel more wanted, accepted, understood, um, those kinds of things. And at that time, I had no idea why I did this, or no idea that I was missing these things or needing this. It was all something I discovered later, but that's looking back, that's what I had done. That's where it started this, the complete emptiness that I had from then. Um, Moving on, the next, the first exposure that I recall that I actually had to pornography was probably around 10 years old, um, and that was at a friend's house. He had had a, a what we called a clubhouse kind of in their upper garage uh, made where us kids used to hang out, and he had some uh, uh, actually hardcore um, magazines that we looked at. So that was my first exposure. It wasn't just Playboy or, or Penthouse. It was, it was hardcore stuff that we saw, um, and that was the first exposure that I had. Um, what year was that? Oh, geez. I was probably, like I said, I was about 10 years old, so that was probably 73-ish. Um, and I, I mean, I got hooked right away. I was, at that point, I was um, getting other magazines. I remember going over to his house at one point, and when I was alone, I actually tore some pages out of the magazine to, to, to take home with me and um, that kind of stuff. Um and uh, continued, you know, getting magazines from different places through, you know, high school and whatnot. Um, and then knowing when I was in, when I was in college, um, I lived alone most of the time. And I started discovering, you know, videos, VHS videos um, at the time, which I always kind of comment and tell people that, uh, you know, if you're, if you're under 30, you probably need to ask your parents or somebody what a VHS video is. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, that's kind of what I, what I got into then, and that was really heavy uh, rent or buy or whatever, you know, a lot of them then while I was in school. Um, I always kind of had the thought, and this is something I'd run into later that, you know, when I, when I finally get, 
you know, either a, a steady girlfriend or actually get married that, that I won't need this anymore. It'll all go away. Um, and it was a few years after college for me, around roughly 25, where um, I got married. And again, I thought things would get better, but it actually got worse. And um, what really happened and what was going on with that, as I explained now when I talked to men, is you think it's going to go away because you can get all the sex you want and you actually have somebody that you can, you know, share your life with and be intimate with and so forth. But what happens is when you get into a relationship at that depth of a level, they start discovering all of your faults, all of your um, inadequacies, and they just start discovering everything that you see within yourself that is the, the unworthiness and so forth. And again, you see it in them as well. But suddenly all of these things that you didn't realize you were trying to cover up and escape from through the activities of pornography mm -hmm. and whatnot are now coming to the surface and you're actually very close to someone who sees them all and points them out for you. Um, so it actually ends up in getting worse. In, in my case, um, I had uh, a few years into our marriage, uh, my own business, uh, and it, it was kind of a software company and I quickly met uh, another individual who had a complimenting company and we used to go to different travel to different trade shows around the country, New York and Vegas and things like that. And he actually introduced me to brothels. Mm. Um, so that was something that for me really escalated the whole thing because just the pornography alone wasn't getting to be enough. It was escalating. But this really exposed me to something that was very powerful, very addictive, um, and it just exploded from there. Uh, one of the things that I, I recall um, in, in a big way of, of how bad it was for me, and with that understanding that in general, um, pornography addiction can be very progressive and it grows in nature, um, and it gets worse and worse just because of the, the chemical nature of whatever, which we'll talk to at another point. But um, there was a point where I, as a Catholic convert, knew and understood the sin of what I was doing. But I would take the time on the Internet or whatever. I would seek out and find a prostitute, an escort, to go visit, plan it in advance. And on the way, going to, you know, the appointment or whatever that I had to go meet with this person, I knew that if I would die before I made it to confession after doing this, that I would go to hell. I knew that full well, 100%, but I would do it anyway. I was clearly playing Russian roulette with my soul. That's how out of control and how far this addiction got with me and how far it gets with so many others that I see as well. Um, in the middle of all, all this too, and like I said, I, I had a software company that, uh, um, that I met this guy through. I, it grew to a point where I was eventually having uh, uh, employees and so forth and ultimately had uh, one employee that um, I ended up having an affair with. And that went on for a few months, and at one point, um, I disclosed it to to my wife and moved out. 
Um, I did move in with her. I had my own apartment at that point. Um, but I, I moved out and we were continuing with it. Um, and then at one point, uh, well, during a lot of this time, um, people in my company, we had, we had probably 20, 20 employees at that time. And some people in the company knew what was going on. Um, and we had a friend of our family, uh, I and, I and Roxanne's family that worked for us, um, uh, you know, at the company. And, and by the way, Roxanne did not work at the, at the company there. Um, but there's a friend of ours that worked with us, um, as an office manager and the woman I was having an affair with had a couple of friends that worked there as well. But so it was, it was not a secret what was going on, um, within the company. And there was one point where, um, there was this, uh, this other woman that, uh, we used to, she was very devout Catholic. And at this point I was, I was a Catholic convert, but I was not really very strong in my faith. Um, but she was a very devout, strong Catholic. And, uh, many of us in the office very disrespectfully would kind of call her a crackpot the way she would talk about things and, and whatnot. And she claimed she'd had visions and, you know, this and that. And we just had no respect, you know, for that, unfortunately, at the time. But one time she came into my office and said that she had had a vision the night before that our kids, I and the other woman's kids, would suffer because of what we were doing. And it was, of course, something that we did not want to hear. And we weren't going to take any chance on, oh, she's nuts, she's crazy, we, you know, this is nothing, whatever, but said, well, we're going to, we need to go talk about this and how we're going to handle this. So we, we uh, left and went to, uh, you know, my apartment and had lunch, um, that day and, uh, kind of discussed this. Um, just for context, <clears throat> how, so kids being me, obviously, right. my sister, how old were we at the time? Cause I don't, I don't, I was too young to know this was going on. Yeah, you were, um, I want to say I always heard that I was around four. You were probably about four and Cassie, Cassie was maybe 10, nine, okay. so some, five, somewhere five in there. Years apart, five and a half years apart. So. Yeah. And her kids were about the same, uh, just maybe a couple years younger, but roughly in the same way she had three and I had two. So mm -hmm. that's kind of the dynamic of what was going on with that. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we, we went and had, you know, had lunch at the apartment to and talk about, well, how are we going to do this? Cause we obviously didn't want our kids to suffer and whatnot. And this is kind of where it really gets, uh, uh, strange. Um, we were so set on what we wanted to do. And so, I don't know if you want to say dedicated isn't the right word, but so, so set on what we wanted to do that we actually took the time and prayed that God would protect our families while we were doing what we were doing. Now, how disordered and weird screwed up is that? Okay. We're praying to continue in our sin. You know, God protect our families while we're continuing to sin, right? Okay. Well, that's how blind we get when we're doing these kinds of things and how selfish we are. We don't see this. Now, there was one additional caveat that I added to it. 
And I actually said to God, I said, God, I will do anything you want. Just make this work out so our kids don't get hurt. Well, God, you know, they always say God has a sense of humor. Well, he kind of did in this moment. He listened to the first half and he ignored the second half. He listened to the, I will do anything you want. And he ignored the, just let this continue to happen. Well, at, the, at that, shortly after that moment, um, very strange phenomenon. I, I sort of began to have the very faint image of a stop sign just kind of in my vision, just kind of in front of me. It was hardly noticeable, but it was just something there, and I just thought it was strange. Couldn't explain it. It was just something there. Now, we had finished our lunch, going back to the, uh, um, uh, going back to the office, and um, on the way back, the sign got just just a little bit stronger. Not not a lot, but just I just noticed. Remember, it was there. Now I got back in the office, and no more than walked in the door, where uh, the family friend of Ian Roxanne's, who the office manager that I mentioned, followed me in the, into my office. She was in tears. She was shaking. She was very upset. Up until that point, she had been supportive of the whole affair because I, of course, gave her the horrible story of how the marriage was because it was all one-sided, what I said. So she was supportive um, based on, you know, my lopsided story. But she came in the office, and she, like I said, she was very visibly upset. And she says, I don't know why, but about a, about a half an hour ago, I had this overwhelming sense that I had to tell you that you have to stop doing what you're doing. Mm. I don't know why. She just, she didn't understand it. She said that came over her. She didn't explain it. She just came in. She just, I have to tell you this. And and what was 30 minutes before? 30 minutes before was about the time we were praying. Yeah. About the time I said, God, I'll do anything you want. Just whatever. But I didn't put those two together at that moment. Right. But this happened. She no more than walks out of the office, and another employee almost runs into her coming in my office. This was an employee who was, you know, probably three levels down. She had a manager who had another manager who reported to me. So it's somebody who I really hardly ever talked to. Um, but she came in my office, and she was upset. And she was she was saying she says I, I I can't help this I have to say this and I, I I'm afraid I don't want to lose my job but I have to, I have to tell you that you have to stop what you're doing. And she says I don't want to lose my job I'm sorry but I I can't I can't help myself I have to say something. Mm -hmm. I'm going okay I said okay you're not gonna lose your job that's okay go that's it's fine just I'm you know thank you for sharing with me. And I'm sitting what is going on, this is strange um almost immediately afterwards this other woman the crackpot that i've talked about before um uh and she comes in and she says you know there was a dark cloud over your over your company before that i, I sort of see might be lifting and i'm going really okay well i don't understand why she goes i don't know but she says just have that sense hmm. okay now, meanwhile, while all this is happening, this 
weird stop sign is getting bolder right in front of my face. It's just like it's blocking my vision, sort of. It's just there. I had no under no idea. It just it's annoying. I didn't understand it. She leaves, and then the woman I'm having an affair with comes in. She's all upset. She hasn't talked to anybody else, but she, she just comes in and says, I just have this horrible feeling that everything is falling apart. Why is she having this feeling? She hasn't talked to anybody. Nobody said anything to her. She doesn't know what just happened to me in the last 20 minutes. Mm. So why is she feeling this way? And I'm trying to, you know, console her going, okay, no, no, it's fine. I don't know why you're thinking that or whatever. And I'm setting thinking the same thing, actually. Now, the stop sign keeps getting bolder. And I have this overwhelming feeling at that point that maybe this needs to stop. Maybe I can't do this. I didn't want to stop. I wanted to continue with what I was doing, but something overwhelmingly was just telling me, <laughs> maybe be, you know, the stop sign or whatever. All these events in the short period of time, I, I, I need, I can't do this. I have to stop. Mm. Uh, I didn't say anything to her, but I called Roxanne and without really sharing a lot, I just asked if I could come home that night and, and talk to her and, you know, I may want to come home. And she said, fine. So as I recall, I left work a little early came home, we talked, um, shared the stuff that was going on and so forth. And I, uh, eventually after work hours, uh, called the other woman and told her that I can't do this. We have to stop. Um, and it kind of, we kind of ended it, ended it there. Um, now as a, kind of a backstory with this uh, for the couple of weeks before this, during the affair and so forth, um, there was a men's retreat coming up this coming weekend. And some of the uh, close friends of ours um, wanted me to go. They were talking to me and, and, and whatnot. And one of uh, uh, special friends of, our, of, of ours, his name is Paul, um, wanted me to go. He offered to take me on the retreat and so we'd have to talk or anything just just wanted me to go and up until this point I was saying no this is not what I want I know what I want I don't want to do this I'm not going on this retreat um I don't need to hear anything there I know what I want I know what I'm doing mm -hmm. and I just you know kind of shut it down wasn't interested at all and and so forth so um now all this had been happening to where this this all these events that happened this day were on a Thursday and Friday evening was the start of this men's retreat. I was not going. At this point, when I came after had ending it with the the other woman, um, I and Roxanne spoke, and she said, "Well, maybe I think you need to go on this retreat." And I said, "Well, okay, let me think. Let me think about it. Let me um, sleep on it. Whatever." And uh, next day, probably, I don't know, noon or something like that, 
um, I had I called Paul and said, okay, I'll go. And he said, well, I'll pick you up like 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon. He said, we don't have to talk about anything. We'll just, just go. So pick me up. We went, got there, you know, late afternoon. Um, they were checking people in and so forth. And for whatever reason, um, my name was on the list. It was a pre-printed list. Everything was there. But now my name was on it. I wasn't even, I didn't even tell anybody I was going until I told Paul I was going. And he said, we'll just go. Had a name tag, everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in, assigned to a small group. I was, you know, it was like, why all this? I wasn't even going until a couple hours ago. Well, anyway, so we start the evening activities and go to they have a talk and we do small group breakout and whatever and then we're mingling in the after in the in the early evening and this this priest walks around Father Ken um, Leone. He's walking around. He sees me, sees my name tag, and says, "Dan Angst, I've been looking all over for you." really okay i'm not even supposed to be here <laughs> and he says oh i have something for me for you um god told me to give you this and it was an envelope with my name on it i said okay god told me to, told you to give me this okay whatever another strange thing happening anyway i opened up the letter oh i opened up the envelope and there's a letter inside and the letter says Dan, if Dan, there is so much I would like to tell you if only there were enough time. You are entering a very difficult time, but only but it is also a time when you are going to learn a lot about Roxanne, about yourself, and about me and my love for you. Please be patient with yourself. This is not going to go away overnight. The wounds are deep but not fatal. There is much healing that needs to take place for your wife, your friends, yourself, and for our relationship. The important thing, though, is that our relationship has begun. Let's go through this together. Give me all of your hurt, your resentment, and your pain. I can take it, and I promise I will continue to love you. There are big plans for you ahead. If only you knew everything that is still ahead. It is so important to begin the healing process. I will be here to help you. Please lean on me. Use me. I will give you the strength and courage when you have nothing left. You will discover that true strength comes from humility and the true power comes from grace. I will be here to help you, but the work is up to you. Your friend, Jesus. I about fell on the floor. I, it just blew me away what was in this letter. And furthermore, my name, Dan, has two N's on it, unusual spelling. Roxanne's name has one N in it, an unusual spelling. The letter has both of our names spelled correctly. Mm-hmm. Nobody knew I was coming. I mean, out of out of everybody there, how many people even know you at all? Paul and... Probably four. Four people. Yeah. And did you go up there with all of them or just... No, just Paul. It was just Paul. Just Paul. And nobody else knew I was coming nobody, except Paul. Nobody called ahead and was like... No. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 where the priest got the, I, I, lo- I was running around looking for him. I couldn't find him. Yeah. 
I found him the next day. And, and I, I said, who gave you the letter? He says, I don't know. I don't remember. I said, he said, why? I gave him the letter. He looked at it. And he says, well, obviously God gave it to me. <laughs> I said, how did this come? So anyway, um, I mean, that was kind of the start of where things were um, actually happening uh, more or less. But came home from the retreat. I felt much better, obviously. I had a good confession, came over. But we hadn't dealt with the real issue in our marriage. Um, did not deal with the, the what I did to Roxanne, the damage I caused. Did not deal with what was underneath me, the, the truth of why I was you know, addicted and so forth. Um, but several years after this is when things started up again. And that's where it goes into the introduction of my book. Right. Opened with that, that introduction. That's when I ended up in going to massage parlor, getting more of the massage and ended up with the STD. Um, now from that point, Roxanne obviously was talking divorce. Um, she had, I, I don't know how she went through what she did before without going that far, but that's where she was at this point. And she said, I want to talk to a priest and I want to see what my options are and so forth. Now, by no coincidence, I'm sure, we ended up being able to meet and talk with Father Ken, who gave me the letter. I don't recall how we found him or how we got to him, but we met with him. And in meeting with him, he he basically just asked her, he, she, he said, will you give me two months with him? And she said, fine. So I kind of had a two-month reprieve to figure out what's, you know, what we're doing, what's going on. I mean, I don't know what we're happening here, but he got me started in a small group a small men's group, recovery group, um, that he and another guy had formed at, at their parish right there. Um, and that is really where my life started to change. I entered the first meeting of, of that group, and one of their um, protocols for the meeting, for the men's group meeting, was whenever a new member comes in, um, everybody goes around and gives like a short, like three or four minute snippet of their own story. And there was maybe six, seven, eight guys or something like that in this group at the point. As they went around, everybody telling their stories, I'm sitting there holding back tears, thinking, these guys get me. I didn't think that was possible. Nobody understands what I'm going through and what I'm feeling and how hard this is. Nobody gets this. They did. Every single one of them knew exactly what I was going through. That was something I didn't think was possible. Now, by, by chance, they were also doing, um, listening to this this uh, CD presentation by Christopher West. Um, I think it's called The Winning the Battle for Sexual Purity. And it was like three CD set. And they were listening to the last CD. And it was very good, very captivating. And I thought, wow, this is this is really cool. I want to I listen to the whole thing. So I immediately 
you know, after the meeting, went home. I bought it on Amazon, had it in a couple days. I started listening to it um, immediately. And less than 10 minutes into the video, uh, Christopher West makes a statement from G.K. Chesterton. It says, every man who stands at the doorstep of a brothel is looking for God. I had to pause the CD. I was crying so hard. I actually had been at the doorstep of, of a brothel many times, as you know from the beginning of my story. So it was something that I never understood why I'm doing this. I'm just doing this and I have to do it. I was compelled. What? And then to say that, it w I mean, it just blew my world wide open uh, to say I was looking for God. Because I got it. It made it 100% sense. 100% sense of what was happening. It didn't stop. It didn't change anything. But it's it opened my eyes to what was going on um, for my growth and recovery from that point. Thanks so much for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed our podcast. If you have any topics you'd like us to discuss in future episodes, shoot us an email at ask at roadtopurity.com. Don't forget to visit our website, roadtopurity.com, for all our free resources and affordable programs to help men and women who are looking to grow in sexual purity. We rely on donations to keep doing what we do, so if you'd like to support Road to Purity, please consider donating at roadtopurity.com forward slash donate. Thanks again for your support. God bless.